Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners, I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. The True Crime Podcast Festival is back for 2022. The festival gives listeners the opportunity to mix and mingle with some of their favorite true crime and now paranormal podcasts. Who knows, you may even find a new one. The festival is being held in Dallas, Texas from August 26th through the 28th. The Good Pods app is a great way to follow the shows and even listen to a curated playlist of their most talked about episodes. Right now, we still have some early bird tickets available, so you can head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to buy your tickets. I'm going to put the link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. I'll also provide a link to the Good Pods app because it honestly is the best way to listen to podcasts. If you want more of me and more true crime topics in your life, download the Spotify Green Room app today. Every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, I host a show called True Crime Convos. I talk about pretty much anything related to true crime. If you have a case suggestion, feel free to let me know what it is, and I'll see you on the Spotify Greenroom app. Have you ever been listening to the show and think to yourself, wow, I really wish I could just subscribe to their ad-free content, but there's so many apps involved to do that. Well, Apple Podcast has made it possible for you to subscribe to the show and get the ad-free content straight through the app. So we've made it available to all of our listeners on Apple Podcasts. So if you're interested in ad-free content, you can subscribe starting today. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. In the United States, dating back to the 13 colonies, approximately 364 juveniles have been executed by individual colonies, states, or the federal government for crimes they were found guilty of committing. 22 individuals were executed between 1976 and 2005 for crimes committed when they were juveniles. In 1976, the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty, and in 2005, they ruled that juveniles could not be sentenced to death, as it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment. Sean Sellers was born in California on May 18, 1969. His mother, Vonda, was only 16 when he was born. His father was reportedly an alcoholic, and he and Vonda divorced when Sean was around three or four. Shortly thereafter, Vonda remarried to Paul Bellofato, who was a truck driver. Paul was also known as Lee by most people, but Sean called him dad. The little family moved around a lot. By the time Sean was 16, he had moved over 30 times. Also, as a young child, 
Sean was frequently left with relatives while his mother and stepfather worked as cross-country truck drivers. His grandparents and great-grandparents lived together, and he was left most often with them. Sean would later write that each time his mom left, he would smile, then go to the bathroom and cry. He never let anyone, particularly his stepdad, see him do this, because Lee hated weakness of any kind. Sean felt like an outsider in school because he didn't have the same last name as anyone else in his family. At age eight, Sean moved with his parents to Los Angeles, where they stayed with a relative in an apartment complex that did not allow children. Sean was constantly yelled at to be quiet and stopped running. He knew no one, so he stayed in his bedroom as much as possible or tried to blend in to the shadows of the apartment building. Sean was scared to go to school because he was bullied by boys much larger than him. One day at the apartment, one of his older relatives molested him and made Sean perform fellatio on him. Sean described not only his shame, but also his fear that he would get in trouble for doing it. The family did not stay in California for long, and soon, Sean was back in Oklahoma with his grandparents. Much later in his life, Years after he had committed his crimes, Sean would claim he had started hearing voices in his head at age six or seven. He also became paranoid and had severe mood swings, from extreme happiness to clinical depression with suicidal ideation. Sean's issues stemmed largely from his inability to feel rooted anywhere, or that he was unable to ever have friends. Sean was also abused, not just by the male relative, but his mother and grandfather both had tempers and would physically abuse him. Sean later explained he had to walk on eggshells around his mother because the slightest thing could set her off. One of her favorite moves was to smack him directly on his mouth with a flat hand, often cutting his lips on his teeth and causing them to swell. She would also hit him on the hand with anything that was in reach, wooden spoons, the hilt of a knife, hairbrushes, or whatever she could grab in the moment. When Sean was 13, his stepdad's nephew came to live with them. Sean looked up to this young man who was 18 at the time. Through him, Sean learned about ninjutsu and fell in love with it. He began checking out books at the library to learn more about ninjutsu and found out that although it's considered a self-defense art now, it was originally the fighting tactic of trained assassins. Sean had hoped that if he were more like his cousin, his stepdad might like him better. But around this time, Sean was sent to stay with his aunt and uncle. This uncle mocked Sean for his obsession with ninjutsu and ridiculed Sean for taking martial arts lessons. This increased when Sean's instructor ended up with a broken jaw after a bar brawl. At 15, Sean and his family were living in Colorado, and Sean was happy for once. He was active in the Civil Air Patrol and was the cadet commander of his squadron. Sean finally had his stepdad's approval, but all of that came crashing down when his parents said they were moving. Sean argued against it, begging them to let him stay, but soon enough he was back in Oklahoma. He would later write that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. This was when he became involved in the occult. He claimed he met a witch and learned about black magic, 
He started reading about Satanism and was drawn to it because it offered him the freedom he desired, along with the power to control his own life. Sean formed a group called the Elimination, combining the tenets of Satanism with his love for ninjutsu. The group began performing rituals and tried to break the biblical Ten Commandments. Sean and one of his friends, Richard, planned on robbing Richard's boss as she dropped off the nightly deposit. They even staked out the bank one night while she was dropping off the cash bag. They really just laughed about all their plans to rob, rape, and kill. But finally, the group had only one commandment left. Thou shall not kill. On September 8, 1985, after a ritual they did outside, Richard and Sean decided to kill two people that night. Sean had said he wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. Richard would later testify that Sean had said that, in addition to Sean admitting this. They were going to kill a convenience store clerk who had refused to sell Robert beer one night and had insulted Richard's girlfriend. This convenience store clerk was Robert Paul Bauer and was selected by Richard. Richard also selected the other person they were going to kill, his girlfriend's father, Al Hawks. Richard said Al was physically abusive and wanted to kill him to protect his girlfriend. Richard brought his grandfather's 357 revolver and a 22 rifle. The pair went to the convenience store and chatted with Robert, asking him about the lack of a surveillance camera. Robert said he wasn't worried. There was only $50 in the cash register. The boys bought fountain sodas, and finally, Robert went outside to look at Richard's new clutch pedal, because Robert needed a new one too. When Robert went back into the store, Sean grabbed the revolver and made out like he was going to follow him, but chickened out. He said he walked around to the side of the building and heard a voice calling him a coward and weak, and suddenly his back straightened and he went in to murder Robert. Richard tried to distract Robert, and as Robert stood to help Richard, Sean fired at him. Robert ducked and ran. Sean followed him and Robert slipped and fell. Sean fired again, but missed. Finally, the pair trapped him behind the counter, and Richard yelled, Do it! Sean fired again, and this time struck Robert, causing him to fall and land on his side. Richard tried to get into the cash register, and Sean started yelling at him, Let's go! They got into Richard's car and started laughing about what they had just done. Sean later wrote that this disgusted him. They never went to Al's house to kill him that night and returned the gun to Richard's house. Sean said he didn't even remember the killing at times, but then other times he thought about it and it made him feel strong. At this time, Sean had met and fallen in love with a girl named Angel. His mother hated Angel and called her horrible names. This left Sean enraged and anxious to turn 18 so he could leave the house. One day, Vonda told Sean if he was so anxious to get out, he should just pack his shit and leave. Sean did, and went to work. But Lee followed him and told him to get his ass back home after work. Lee was insistent that Sean stay there and follow their rules, but Vonda wanted to send Sean to California to live with his biological father. After that, the situation at home became unbearable. Sean and his mom got into a physical altercation over Angel, 
but Sean said he was finally big enough to just push his mother out of the way. However, this was the turning point for Sean, and he bought rat poison and put it in three cups of his mother's coffee. When that didn't kill her, he blinked and went back to normal, just wanting to move out of the house, but then he would blink again and want her dead. On March 5, 1986, the night he committed the murders, Sean had another blink and decided they had to go. He went to his parents' room and took Lee's 44 revolver from the nightstand and put it in his bedroom. Lee talked to him about rebuilding the engine in Sean's pickup, and then his parents went to bed. Sean performed a ritual in his own bedroom, stripped down to his black underwear, and then snuck into their bedroom. Sean placed the large handgun against Lee's head and pulled the trigger. He immediately fired a round at his mother's head, which came off the pillow. He fired another shot at her and then put the gun down in the hall. He later wrote that he wasn't sure how, but he ended up at Richard's house, trying to determine what to tell the police. Richard suggested that they hide the gun at his house, and they agreed that Sean would find the bodies of his parents and call the police. Richard, Sean, and an unidentified girl went to Sean's house. Richard and the girl waited in the car while Sean went inside. While there, he discovered the crime scene and ran outside screaming. A police spokesperson would tell journalists that detectives believed Sean's hysterics were a ruse. Sean's step-grandfather told investigators that Sean was very studious and seemed to get along well with his family. Carlos Lindley said he and Sean often went quail hunting. Carlos was Vonda's stepfather and said he didn't know of any abuse in the household. Books about the occult were found in Sean's room when investigators searched the home, and investigators did not believe that Richard was involved in the occult. On March 10, 1986, Sean and Richard were charged with first-degree murder. Sean was charged with three counts, and investigators believed he was the gunman in all three crimes. Sean was charged as an adult, although his public defender planned to file a motion to have Sean classified as a juvenile. Both teens pled innocent. At a hearing in April 1986, Richard testified that Sean told him he was scared before he shot Robert Bauer, but afterwards he just didn't feel anything. Sean made similar statements after he shot his parents, telling Richard he suddenly felt chilled out. He also told Richard if he was caught, he'd probably plead insanity. On Monday, May 12, 1986, Sean was ordered to face trial as an adult in the three murders. Judge Manfield T. Buford said he could not risk the safety of the public by allowing Sean to be tried as a juvenile. Had he been tried as a juvenile, Sean would have been released at age 19. After the hearing, the assistant district attorney gave Sean a bill of particulars, which is the legal notice that the death penalty would be sought. This was the 1980s, and much was made of Sean's interest in the occult and Satanism. Sean told a member of the County Juvenile Bureau that he had been interested in voodoo, witchcraft, and magic for several years. But since being in jail, he was a Christian. Sean told the juvenile worker that he had tried to recruit others to join him in Satanism and had once carried a Satanic Bible to school. A teacher reported that this led to a fight between Sean and multiple other students. 
he was arrested for shoplifting bolts of black clothes the previous summer. A court-ordered psychological report said Sean had an atypical personality disorder and was a sociopath. Sean admitted that most of his talk about casting spells and contacting demons was a fabrication, although he admitted he did have visual and auditory hallucinations, and he had been possessed by demons. Vonda's father, James Blackwell, testified on Sean's behalf in the hearing about Sean's classification as an adult. In July 1986, Richard was given a five-year deferred sentence on a charge of accessory to murder. The first-degree murder charge against him was dropped in April 1986. His plea agreement to the accessory charge required him to testify against Sean. The deferred sentence was similar to driving probation, As long as Richard had no other arrests in that five-year period, the accessory charge would not go on his record. Sean's trial began in September 1986. The defense put forth by his attorneys was that Sellers either didn't do the killings or didn't kill intentionally because he was under the influence of Satanism. His attorney also asked the jury to consider whether Sellers was driven insane by his involvement in Satanism. Testimony from several witnesses conflicted with what Sean would later write when trying to have his sentence overturned. Four people testified that Sean told them he killed Robert Bauer because he wanted to find out what it felt like to kill someone, and because he was the one Robert denied beer to the night before Robert's death. One of Sean's co-workers testified that Sean had drawn a picture of two people, lying in a pool of blood before his parents' death. One of the people in the drawing resembled his mother. His friend Richard testified that Sean had told him he took a shower after he killed his parents to wash off the gunpowder. The trial took an exciting twist on September 29, 1986, when the prosecutor and defense attorney argued in front of the judge. At one point, the prosecutor told the defense attorney they should step outside. Thankfully, the confrontation occurred before the jury was seated for the day, and the judge was able to intervene to calm things down. This was also the day that the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons was introduced as one of the factors that led to the murders. In fact, the argument between the attorneys that morning was whether one of the defense attorney's expert witnesses was actually an expert. The witness in question was Patricia Pooling, founder of the group Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, or BADD. Patricia, from Richmond, Virginia, became involved in occult investigations when her son, Bink, completed suicide by shooting himself in the heart. The suicide took place hours after a curse had been placed on him during a session of Dungeons and Dragons, held at the local high school. A year after his death, Patricia filed a wrongful death suit against the principal of the high school a year after Bink's death, and then followed that one with a lawsuit against TSR, the publishers of the Dungeons & Dragons book. Patricia was the co-author on the book, The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan? Unfortunately, many conservative groups viewed this book as hard proof against Satanism and Dungeons & Dragons. I say unfortunately, because Patricia and Kathy Cawthorn's research methods were spurious at best. 
In the polling report, written by Michael Stackpole, he questioned her authenticity as an expert witness in trials across the country. Her credentials were that she was a licensed private investigator in Virginia and in 1987 claimed to be one for six years. Michael Stackpole actually did research and found out Patricia had only received her PI license in 1987. Michael accused Patricia of cherry-picking information gleaned from newspapers across the country. He stated that her information was misleading and also a copyright infringement as she manipulated articles to read what she wanted to read. At one point, she told a Richmond journalist that 8% of individuals living in Richmond were Satanists. When the journalist asked her how she arrived at that statistic, she said that she estimated that 4% of adults and 4% of juveniles were Satanists, so she added them together. The journalist pointed out that was still just 4% of residents in Richmond, and she replied that the 8% was a conservative estimate. This episode is sponsored by Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, drops a new jewelry collection every Friday. That gives you plenty of time to not rush around and look for a quick gift for your mom or the mother in your life. I have a lot of new moms that I'm excited to get pieces of jewelry for. Here's the great thing. Pieces start as low as $39. They have necklaces, rings, ear cuffs, which I had no idea that was a thing. And I know that's going to be the perfect gift for one of the moms in my life. She likes really understated jewelry, and Ana Luisa has it all for everyone. So don't scramble around this Mother's Day and try and find something that works for them. Really take the time and check out Ana Luisa's jewelry. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. So here's what you need to do. Go to shop.analuisa.com slash TCFC. Make mom's day and treat her to new jewelry pieces with Ana Luisa's buy one, get one 40% off sale. So one piece for her and one piece for you. Once again, you go to shop.analuisa.com slash TCFC. And trust me, I know you'll love them. I even did a little sneak peek of what I got on my Instagram page. There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day. I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system. And I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best. So sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water. And I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there. And it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original black elderberry and was developed by a virologist, so I know I'm getting a great quality product. And you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at sambucolusa.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off.
That's sambucallusa.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A dot com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices, from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. Did you know that every 12 organic core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That's amazing and a great way to make a difference with a gift for a loved one. Just know your phone will be protected from drops as high as 14 feet. Best of all, all organic or clear cases are also wireless charging compatible. And there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. So what do you get? You get 20% off and free shipping within the U.S. with code TCFC at Incipio.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TCFC at Incipio.com. Patricia was not the only expert witness who testified for the defense in Sean's trial. Also testifying was a former defense investigator from Florida, who became aware of the game while working on a murder trial in Florida. Vicki Myers was a mother who became involved in the satanic panic after her own children were recruited. She became an expert after interviewing 30 Satanists. As the trial was winding down, Psychologists gave conflicting testimony about Sean's mental state during the killings. The psychologist for the defense claimed that Sean was not aware of his actions, whereas the state psychologist testified he found no signs that Sean had lost touch with reality. On October 1, 1986, the jury found Sean Sellers guilty on all three counts of first-degree murder. After the verdict was read, Sean, teary-eyed, told reporters, I want to warn teenagers out there. It's not the way. Jesus is the only answer that's out there. And it's time teenagers got serious about Jesus here in America. It's time now. He also said, There's nothing I can do to bring my parents back to life. I don't understand the verdict. I loved my parents. And if something like this, Satanism and Dungeons and Dragons, could have caused me to do something like this, thank people think. The next day, after deliberating for just under three hours and praying before deliberations began, the jury chose the death penalty for Sellers. The defense attorney argued the death penalty was just another form of violence that encouraged killing. The prosecutor stated it might not be the best way to stop murders, but hopefully this would work to slow down similar killings. One juror said, He didn't show no mercy on the three people he killed. The defense was asking for mercy. Another juror explained, If that verdict saves one kid from Satanism or keeps one other person from getting killed, then it's justified. The appeals process started immediately. During one of the many appeals, Sean cited the case Thompson v. The State of Oklahoma in 1986 claiming that the death penalty for someone age 16 was unconstitutional. However, as we are going to see in the case of Thompson v. State, 
William Wayne Thompson was 15 at the time he committed his crimes. Six years after he was sentenced to death, Sean was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Dr. Dorothy Ottnow claimed in 1992 that she had misdiagnosed Sean with schizophrenia, but realized he had multiple personalities. Sean tried to obtain clemency based on this, but the defense team did not use an insanity defense during his trial. They focused on Satanism and brainwashing. Additionally, Dr. Marcus Barker, a psychiatrist in Oklahoma, who studied DID for 12 years, said that if Sean Sellers truly suffered from DID, it should have been diagnosed much sooner than six years after his trial. An appeals court did state that Sean might have been factually innocent, but it was too late to consider insanity. Dr. Barker also said it would be easy for someone to fake the symptoms of DID. Fred Cook, who managed the building that housed the death row inmates in Oklahoma, said he had seen a woman appear to coach Sean. Fred said he watched the woman hold up cards with notes such as, roll your eyes and stammer. Sean would do the action on the card. Other prison officials scoffed at Sean's claims of having more than one personality. The former warden said Sean was a master manipulator who was only out for himself. This warden had seen a lot of inmates and knew of two death row inmates who were true Christians and acted the same way, being respectful in assisting inmates who were bedridden. He said Sean had never acted in a way to assist anyone but himself. Sean Sellers was executed by lethal injection on February 4, 1999. His last meal was egg rolls, sweet and sour shrimp, and battered fried shrimp. During his final statement, he offered no apology for ending the lives of three individuals, instead saying, all the people who are hating me right now and are here waiting to see me die, when you wake up in the morning, you're not going to feel any different. You're going to hate me just as much tomorrow as tonight. When you wake up and nothing has changed inside, reach out to God and he will be there for you. Reach out to God and he will heal you. Let him touch your hearts. Don't hate all your lives. I love you all. He was pronounced dead at 12.17 a.m. Another juvenile death row case from Oklahoma was that of William Wayne Thompson, who I'll call Wayne. On the evening of January 22, 1983, Wayne Thompson, 15 years old, left his mother's house with three older friends, Anthony Mann, 27, Ricky Jones, 25, and Bobby Joe Glass, 19. As they left, Wayne told his girlfriend they were going to kill Charles. Charles was Charles Keene, Wayne's ex-brother-in-law. Charles had been married to Vicky, Wayne's half-sister and Anthony's sister. Charles was abusive to Vicky and on the afternoon of January 22nd, he had chased Anthony and another brother, Danny Mann, out of Vicky's home with a butcher knife. They visited law enforcement afterwards but were told nothing could be done. Anthony gave his sister a 45 caliber pistol to protect herself. Wayne heard about this from his mother and saw the gun on the kitchen counter at his mother's house. That night, the three adult men were drinking, smoking, and popping Valiums, 
hatching a plan to run Charles off by beating him up and leaving him on the highway outside of town. Wayne asked if he could join them, and Anthony agreed. Unbeknownst to Anthony, Wayne and Bobby had put a cement block and chains in the trunk of the car and took the gun from the kitchen. Thompson later revealed that he and Bobby had already planned to murder Charles that night and conceal the crime by dumping his body in the Washita River. When they went to get Charles Keene, he went with them with no resistance. As Anthony drove, Bobby and Wayne sat on either side of Charles in the back seat. Ricky Jones was passed out in the front seat. When they got to the river, Anthony told Charles they were going to beat him up, so Charles made a run for it. Charles, at 200 pounds, was much larger than Wayne or Bobby, so Wayne decided to use the handgun to even things out. Charles grabbed the gun, which went off and fell to the ground. The shot woke up Malcolm Possum Brown and his wife, who then heard someone beating on the door and yelling, Possum, open the door, let me in, they're going to kill me. Possum phoned the sheriff's office, then opened the door. When Possum opened the door, he saw Charles on all fours, trying to ward off repeated kicks and blows from three men. A fourth male was standing apart, holding a gun. One of the men was hitting Charles with something a foot or so in length. This was used to knock Charles unconscious. Meanwhile, the police had called Possum back to see if the fight was still ongoing. At this time, the four men grabbed the unconscious Charles and stuffed him in the trunk. Anthony was still driving and tried to follow up with his original plan, which was to just dump Charles on the highway. But Wayne pulled the gun on him and told him to drive to another spot on the river. Anthony did, but then walked away, refusing to take part in the murder. Wayne and Bobby dragged Charles out of the trunk. As they dragged him closer to the water, Charles woke up and started beating Bobby. While Bobby was on the ground, Wayne shot Charles. Then Bobby took the gun and shot Charles too. Bobby and Wayne then weighed Charles down with at least one cinder block. Accounts vary, but they then threw him in the Washita River. Wayne would later testify that Anthony had nothing to do with the murder, although Charles allegedly told Wayne to take care of his kids. Anthony took some of Charles's personal items and then gave them to Vicky later. Ironically, this was not the first time Charles Keene had been shot by a member of Vicky's family. Several years before, another brother had shot Charles, believing he was going to hurt one of the children. No charges were filed. When Wayne returned home, his girlfriend was still there and helped him take off his boots. She heard him say, We killed him. I shot him in the head and cut his throat and threw him in the river. Another woman in the house overheard Wayne telling his mother he had killed Charles, who was dead and Vicky wouldn't have to worry about him. Over the next several days, Wayne would reveal his actions to numerous people. One future witness commented about hair stuck to a pair of boots he was carrying. He explained those were the boots he was wearing when he had kicked Charles in the head, and then went on to say he had shot Charles and sliced his throat and chest. Another person told Wayne that Charles had been seen dancing, and Wayne said that would be hard to do with a bullet in his head. The sheriff's department received a tip on January 24, 1983, that Charles's body was in the river.
Charles's body was not recovered from the river until February 18, 1983. On the same day, an arrest warrant was filed for Wayne Thompson, and four days later, the state of Oklahoma began proceedings to try Wayne as an adult. Several hearings were held in regards to Wayne being tried as an adult. In April, several witnesses testified that Wayne had shown violent behavior in the past and had been arrested several times, all for assault. One of the witnesses testified that Wayne did not think he would suffer any serious consequences based on his age. A psychologist stated that Wayne had an antisocial personality that would not be helped by the juvenile system. Ultimately, Wayne was tried as an adult and found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death. After several appeals, Wayne's case was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, and his death penalty was reduced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. This was a landmark case which ended up with the Supreme Court deciding that the death penalty violates the Eighth Amendment for juveniles who committed crimes under the age of 16. Their belief was that this was cruel and unusual punishment. The three men who accompanied Wayne that night were also all found guilty and given death sentences. Just about five months after he arrived on death row, Bobby Joe Glass was stabbed seven times as he was going outside for exercise. Robert Jones was also stabbed in the incident. Billy Joe had implicated Robert in his trial, and as a result, Robert had made several threats against him. Bobby Joe, 19, died around 9.30 a.m. on February 12th. Robert was transferred back to the prison infirmary after being treated at a local hospital. The investigation soon revealed Bobby was killed by Robert. Richard Jones was given a new trial in 1988 because the Court of Appeals said he was not given a fair trial initially. A prosecutor made improper remarks, the jury heard improper hearsay testimony, and the jury was shown two color photographs of Charles Keene's body after it was pulled from the river. The photographs had no true purpose other than to inflame the jury. Richard had always contended he was passed out, and Wayne supported this. Therefore, on Sunday, January 17, 1988, the second jury found Richard not guilty of murder. There is no record of charges against him in Bobby Glass's death. In December 1995, it was ruled that Anthony Mann must have a new trial based on a conflict of interest that was discovered with his attorneys from his original trial and sentencing. His two attorneys had represented Richard Jones, then moved on to represent Anthony Mann. In 1996, a jury once again found Anthony Mann guilty of first-degree murder, but juries recommended life without parole for Anthony. Anthony Mann and Wayne Thompson are still incarcerated in the Oklahoma prison system. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFC Podcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. 
If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, a satanic panic survivor. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. While you're waiting for the next episode, check out some of my pod friend shows. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.